0: invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn with me to the first letter of Peter chapter 4 as we continue on in our exposition of this letter entitled faithful sojourners walking worthy in a wayward world by way of introduction let me allow me to make a few remarks at the end of this month, we have a day commonly celebrated as Halloween. However, for Protestant evangelicals, there is a far greater cause for holiday as it is what is commonly referred to as Reformation Day. On October 31st, 1517, there was an Augustinian monk in Wittenberg, Germany who did something that would make mark a major shift in church history the catholic church was the dominant religious force of the day and they had been making a nice profit selling indulgences which was essentially selling salvation this augustinian monk had become convinced through his study of the word that the pope and the catholic church We're actually going against what the Scriptures have to say about salvation. That it is not by purchasing indulgences, but salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So he did what any reasonable man does. He set out to write an argument against the Catholic Church known as the 95 Theses. And he went and nailed them to the front door of the church. Needless to say, this sparked quite the controversy. And soon this document and other theological treatises that he had written began to be passed around. And it caused such a ruckus in the religious world that in April of 1521, he was standing before a council with the charge of, get this, heresy. The Catholic Church wanted him to recant what he had been saying against the church. And so, after meeting the first day at this council, he requests a day to go and pray of whether or not he's going to recant. He takes the day to pray, comes back the next day, and he famously says the following words, quote, Your serene emperor and you illustrious princes and gracious lords. You demand a clear and direct answer. Here it is, plain and unvarnished. I cannot and I will not recant. Why? My conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand I can do no other. God help me. Amen. End quote. This Augustinian monk was Martin Luther. What do you think Martin Luther took the day away from the council to pray about? Undoubtedly, it would appear resolve. Not so much of, is he going to recant and no longer believe what he initially said he believes, but is he going to crumble and bow to the forces of the age? See, he knew what he was doing was going to cost him. But he didn't bow to the opposition, nor did he run in fear. Instead, he demonstrated the sort of steel resolve, iron-clad determination that Peter, in our text today, is exhorting the believers to have. The kind of resolve that stands in the face of opposition counts the cost of following Christ and willingly pays the price knowing He is worth it. The kind of conviction shaped by God's Word that causes you to stand flat-footed in the face of opposition as you, church, you proclaim, here I stand, I can do no other. All the while knowing that what is coming your way might not be pleasant at all, but God Almighty is on your side and He is worthy of your all. The church throughout history has always faced varying degrees and manifestations of persecution. Anywhere that you have found true believers, you are sure to find opposition. After all, the message of the cross is foolishness. It is folly to an unbelieving world lost in sin. The believers of Peter's time, the ones that he has been writing to, they have been grieved by various trials already. And Peter has been encouraging and exhorting them to be ready for more. Not hang in there, it's almost done, but to get your mind ready for more more suffering, more trial, more flames of affliction. How countercultural and counterintuitive is that line of thinking? After last week we saw that he set Christ in his glorious victory before the believers, he now directs them to take up the same mindset. Peter is exhorting these faithful sojourners that they must arm themselves as soldiers for battle with the mindset of Christ that is prepared to suffer even unto death for the sake of obeying the will of God. With that in mind, let's stand and read our text. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1-6. through six. This is the word of the Lord. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, Sovereign Ruler, the Ancient of Days. We pause and we want to hear from Your Word. We hope that Your worship and the praise and the worship that we sang this morning was received as sweet incense before the throne this morning. That we were able to join in for but a moment with the chorus of heaven. Lord, I pray that at this time, you would help us, Lord, to listen closely to what the living God has to say in his word. Help us, Lord, to arm ourselves with this mindset that Peter speaks of. Help me, Lord, to preach faithfully, to not share my own personal thoughts or wisdom or knowledge, but to simply be faithful to what is written. I pray that your people would be benefited and edified Challenged, exhorted, and encouraged, and that Christ would be glorified. We pray this in His name. Amen. You be seated. There is such a sense of urgency in this text. We're going to begin by looking at the call to arms, our first major heading. It's verses one and two. We'll read it one more time just to have it fresh on our mind. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. We're going to look at the impetus for the call to arms. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh since meaning because therefore referring to what he just spoke of in verse 18 look back at 3:18 with me for Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made in the lie alive in the spirit this whole section is such a christ exalting passage as Peter puts forth the glory of Christ revealed through his suffering. I told you then, and I will repeat again today, that Peter was painting a portrait so beautiful and majestic of Christ's glorious victory that it would do something in you. Today's passage shows us one of the main things that Peter wants that portrait to do in your life, to produce in your heart, and that is a certain mindset you see there are implications for us because Christ suffered in the flesh this is not merely information to be taught or to be understood this is knowledge that transforms knowing that Christ suffered in the flesh is not just another phrase but this is life changing information that Christ suffered in the flesh. In other words, it ought to do something to you. It ought to have an effect within us that then works its way out of us. Since Christ suffered is not a phrase that should turn into a mindless cliche. Yeah, yeah, I know. I learned that in vacation Bible school. Are you ever going to talk about something more profound than Christ's suffering in the flesh? It's not Christianese, my friends. This demands something of us. This information, this statement, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, what Peter is saying is because of that, it requires something of you. Not just to sit and hear it and say, wow, well, that's great. I'm glad He did that. Cool. Is it time to go eat Frito pie now? See, you cannot behold the incredible suffering and pain and anguish of that day on Calvary and just flippantly go on about your life. That scene ought to grip you in such a way that it moves you to action. To paraphrase an old song, this suffering is such that it demands my soul, my life, my all. So what are the things the sufferings of Christ demands of us? Well, the first thing that Peter points out is that we need to have the same mindset that Christ had. Look at the second part of verse 1. He says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, enjoy your great Christian life. Isn't that great? He did that for you. Yay. It's not what it says, is it? In fact, it says something that turns most Christians cold, makes people run. He says, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. That's why I titled the sermon, A Mind Ready to Suffer. That you're ready for it. Not resisting it at every turn. But that you are armed with the same way of thinking as Christ. To be sure, there are a myriad of implications of the sufferings of Christ. But the one that Peter focuses on here is your resolve. It's your determination. He tells us in view of the sufferings of Christ. Knowing that He suffered once for all in the flesh for sins, and he was victorious, and he defeated his enemies. You ought to devote yourself to the same way of thinking. Have that mindset. What was the way of thinking that Christ had? What is Peter trying to point us to? That we need to have a mindset of victory What do we need to know about Christ's way of thinking so that we can apply that same thought process to our lives? Let's put it very simply. Christ was unmovable in His resolve to obey the will of the Father no matter what it would cost Him. Christ was unmovable, unshakable in His resolve to obey the will of the Father, no matter what it would cost Him. Where do we get that from? John 4.34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent Me, and to accomplish His work. John 8.29, And He who sent Me is with Me. This is Jesus talking about the Father. And He who sent Me is with Me. He has not left Me alone. Why? For I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Always? Always, Jesus? You always do the things that are pleasing to Him? Yes. Always. So much so that Paul would later write in Philippians 2.8, being found in human form of Jesus, being found in human form, he humbled himself. How? By becoming Obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. We saw that moment of resolve to obey to the point of death as he prayed in the garden. You know what he said there, don't you? Not my will, but yours be done. Do you think that Jesus was just saying these things? Do you think that that Jesus was just saying this because it sounds good to say that in prayer and he wanted to sound particularly pious? No. Jesus was making his flesh submit to the will of the Father saying, not my will, your will be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Knowing what God's will was, was for him to suffer in the flesh, to die He asked if there was any other way to accomplish what he had set out to do, which is to redeem sinners. That's you and me. He asked for the cup to be passed from him. What cup was that? The cup full of God's wrath meant for you and I. But there wasn't any other way, was there? Christ knew very well what he must do. That he must suffer the righteous for the unrighteous, as Peter writes in verse 18. That he must suffer the righteous for the unrighteous so that he could bring us to God. The person who was most undeserving of suffering in human history, Christ Jesus. You know what he was? He was armed, locked And loaded with steel spined resolve to go to the cross and suffer for the undeserving. He didn't say, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I bail. I am leaving. You know what he did? He literally picked up his cross and said, Let's go. Let's do this. My hour has arrived. It is time. And he poured out his blood. Why? Because this was the will of the Father. It was God's will for him. And now, as Peter has so beautifully pointed us to Christ and his victory in the last section, he tells us, do you see what Jesus did? Do you see how he thought most about pleasing the Father, and not the pain, suffering, or anguish that he would endure? Do you see how he thought of God's will as the most important aspect of his life? You, believer, think like that. Think exactly the way that he did. That I don't care if it costs me my life. I will obey the Lord. I don't care what it costs me. I must obey my Father. Don't think, believer, that you will have ease as you walk the narrow road. Don't think that you'll travel to the celestial city without coming across great peril. Don't think the blue sky above you will always be blue. Don't think the people of the world will take kindly to sojourners as they faithfully dwell in the land. Instead, Arm yourself, equip yourself, make yourself ready for action with the same way of thinking as Christ, which says, No matter what it costs, I will obey the Father. What does this mean to arm yourself? Well, it's very reminiscent of Peter's call to gird up the loins of our mind in chapter 1, verse 13 through 21. And there he was speaking of preparing our minds for action. You remember? Preparing your minds for action. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought at Christ's return. And then he goes on to say to not be conformed to the passions of our old lives, but instead live as obedient children in the fear of the Lord. How does that look? Christ modeled it perfectly. How do we do that? We arm ourselves with that same way of thinking. Here in our section, he uses a very important descriptive word. Hoplizo. It's arm yourself. It is military language. It is military language. What, do we, what does that matter? That teaches us about the grit and the resolve the uncompromising determination that is necessary in the Christian life. It's not for some, it's for all of us to be like this. It is an imperative here in the Greek, and we've talked about this before, you all got an A in Greek class, you know that an imperative verb is a what? It's a command. It is a command. Made by who? By Pastor Matt? No, by an apostle who is writing the inspired words of almighty God. In other words, you must obey this and I must obey this to arm ourselves. Here the word is in verb form. But the noun version of the word, you know what it is most often translated as weapons? weapons arm your self you get the sense of soldiers putting on their fatigues loading up their weapons sitting in the cargo plane knowing these may very well be my last breaths but there is no turning back now I have enlisted I've gone through boot camp I've learned how to shoot my weapon I've been debriefed on our mission. I've been deployed on mission. And my country needs me. And I am ready to give my life in defense of her. This is the kind of arming yourself that Peter is telling you to do. I know that many among us would love nothing more than to simply be able to just come to church. Go to work. Have a nice social life go on vacation from time to time, retire at an early age, buy some beachfront property, and count the clock until the Lord takes us home. My friends, that's the American dream that's not Christianity. Did you hear me? That is the American dream that's not Christianity. And we need to examine how much of what we believe is American and how much of it is Christian. How much of it is shaped and formed by the, the scriptures? If that's you this morning, I'm here to tell you, Christianity is not the religion for you, because we are in war time. It is not peace time. It is war time. Granted, our battle is not against flesh and blood. What does that mean? We can't see our enemy all the time. So, because we can't see it, it's easy for us to begin to think that this sort of language is just hyperbolic. And it's descriptive, and it's fanatical speech for you know, the people who want to go be missionaries in a third world country. But if you truly desire to live a godly life, the scriptures are full of promises that this world will hate you. It will hate you. If the world does not hate you, why is that happening? Because you look just like them. The world loves their own, but they hate the light. As you walk in the light, The world hates you. And so it must. Because the world hated your Savior. So much so that they murdered Him publicly in cold blood. And He died a shameful, humiliating death. But we think that people are going to love us and everything is going to go great for us. We're sadly mistaken. Christ went to the cross with this kind of ironclad determination, knowing it is wartime. It is no time to play nice religious games. It's no time to retire early because the battle is raging. And it will rage until the Lord puts an end to it at the end of time. Christ marched into battle against the powers of darkness and he executed the battle plan perfectly. He was going to live a perfect and righteous life, flawlessly obey the will of God, and then die a gruesome death. What kind of battle plan is that? Your plan is to die? I'll tell you what kind of battle plan that was the perfect one. And Christ executed it perfectly. The powers of darkness were put to open shame as Christ triumphed over them through His death on the cross, and He is now reigning in resplendent glory at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because He perfectly executed the will of the Father. We learn that after suffering comes glory. This, Peter says, is the kind of resolve you must arm yourself with. You must have this kind of mindset. Make yourself ready mentally to obey God's will no matter what it might cost you. Why? Because Christ gave His all for you. How dare we think to hold. back. 5% back. 1% back. How dare we think to hold anything back from the rule of Almighty God? Christ gave His all for us. He suffered in the flesh. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He died to bring you to God. Do you need any more motivation this morning? Then your heart is made of stone. Stone my friend, and you must flee to Christ today for a new one. Church, hear me clearly today. I am belaboring my point intentionally because we are no longer in a time in human history where we can drag our feet, where we can take it easy, where we can have our cake and eat it too, where we can have the expectation for comfort and ease And just live a nice, comfortable life. Honestly, if you came to Christ for that, you did not come to Christ for Christ. You came to Him for something else. Which means you have not come to Christ at all. Even if you've been in church for 50 years. To come to Christ is to come to Him for Him. For Him. No matter what it costs you. We must Hear me, we must arm ourselves as soldiers with this line of thinking that we are ready to lay it all down to stand for Christ. If it means losing income, losing financial stability, losing dear, lifelong friends, losing family members, losing titles, positions, freedoms, or yes, even your life, that you are resolved to lose it for the sake of gaining Christ. Because He's worthy. Nothing else is. Christ offers you life, yes, after you die to yourself. Christ offers you a crown, yes, after you take up your cross. Christ offers you glory, yes, after you endure suffering. Why? Because it proves His worthiness. And He is worthy. Oh, is He worthy. Let's look at the reason for this call to arms. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. There's much debate over what exactly Peter is getting at here. But much like last week, men much smarter than I disagree as to the exact meaning of Peter's remarks. But we're just going to focus on what I believe is the most natural understanding of what Peter is getting at here. That those who have resolved to have this way of thinking, and then actually do endure suffering for the cause of Christ... That they have determined to live for the will of God instead of their own sinful desires. Yes, it is either or. There's not a third option. You are either living for your sinful desires or you're living for the will of God. Period. You can't live for both. Jesus said you can serve two masters. Remember that? Oh wait, He said no, you can't serve two masters. Because you will either hate the one and love the other or love the one and hate the other. What does that mean? You're either going to serve your own desires or you're going to serve the will of God. Which one is it for you this morning? Should the suffering be so severe that you are martyred for the faith, then praise the Lord. Because then you'll be in glory where you will fully and finally be done with sin. We also learn here that very simply and fundamentally, sin is living for your own desires instead of the will of God. That's why sin is rebellion. Because God has His will, and you're saying, no, I don't think I will. I will do something else. I want my own way. I want to do this my way. I've been in church for 78 years Let me tell you how to be a Christian. God? It doesn't work that way, does it? We submit ourselves to the Holy Written Word. And when we see that we are out of line, we don't explain it away. We say, I confess that I am in sin. I repent. Lord, help me to live out your word. Because Christ is worthy to be armed and equipped with the same way of thinking as Christ, is to be devoted to the will of God to the point that you are willing to endure physical suffering if it's necessary. This is demonstrating that you are no longer devoted to your own way, but you are devoted to the Lord. In substance abuse counseling, it has been said that the way that they identify if you are an alcoholic is if you continue to drink after experiencing negative consequences because of your drinking. An alcoholic is someone who will continue to drink, though it destroys themselves and everyone around them. But in reality, that's just the truth of sin. Sin. Just plain old being a sinner. Before Christ, that was you. If you're not in Christ... That is you this morning. You are willing to continue to live in your sin, though you know negative consequences are on the horizon. You are actively choosing to continue on with looming judgment and wrath over your head. That's exactly what sin does. And we are enslaved to it until Christ frees us. Peter here is telling us, to take that mindset though and use it for good that we are resolute in our commitment to obey the will of God no matter if we experience negative consequences from the world around us and in so doing we will be demonstrating that sin has lost its strong grip on our lives don't you want that I want that Our second heading is the death of the old life. Verses 3 through 5. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter says that we've had enough time now in the past to have lived out the sinful desires of the flesh. What does that mean? Enough. Put it away. Stop it. That's pretty clear, isn't it? What does this mean? No more. Put it behind us. That this old nature is dead well, you know, I just I'm just struggling. I'm just, you know, I'm just this, that. Peter says, the time that's passed is suffices. You've had time. You've indulged that sinful flesh long enough. Put it away. What does it profit you anyway? No believer has ever, after sinning, said, I'm so glad I did that. Do you know what every last one of them says? Man, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish, I wish I hadn't done that. Which one are you this morning? What is your attitude to sin? He lists off sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The idea here is that the Gentiles, as he calls them, love to do these things. He isn't speaking of Gentiles in an ethnic sense, but simply referring to unbelievers. Because of this lifestyle that he speaks of, we can see that this is the kind of life they used to live. And they probably weren't Jews either, because Jews were following Torah, and so they wouldn't be living this sort of lifestyle, because Torah doesn't permit it. But Peter is saying that either way, you're no longer that person. That is not you anymore. You're no longer the person who lives in sensuality, in immoral sexual passions, in drunkenness, in orgies, wild drinking parties, and you're certainly no longer engaged in lawless idolatry. The idea here of lawless idolatry is referring to shameful shameful, idol worship. Meaning, it's not just the bowing to a carved piece of wood, though that is plenty shameful, but the kind of idolatry that involves practices that are too sensitive to even repeat. The beauty of this, though, the beauty of this, that Peter is saying, that the time is passed for that, is saying, my friend, that's not you anymore. Hallelujah. You're not that person anymore. God has set you free. If you are in Christ, He has set you free. You're not that person anymore. So put it away. And walk in the freedom that the Lord Christ has purchased for you. What a comforting reminder this is of the transformative power of the lord that he could take people who would who would engage in these vile disgusting practices and purify them and make them new and set them on an entirely different path a path now directed by the lord Volibakum at the conference this past week spoke from revelation about Christ and his worthiness of worship And he was saying that Christ is the most worthy of worship. He demands that we worship Him. But you and I, in our sin, we are unworthy to worship Him the way that He ought to be worshipped. So what did Christ do? He went and gave His life, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring you to God. He made you worthy to be able to worship the worthy one. My friends, that is power. That is real power. The worthy one dying to make the unworthy worthy. It matters not how vile you are, for never has someone been so sinful so as to nullify the power and efficacy of the precious blood of Christ. Never has anyone hated righteousness so much that the love of God could not overcome him. Never has anyone been so enslaved to sin so as to make the saving arm of the Lord powerless to break His chains. Never has anyone been so unholy that the Spirit of God could not make Him holy. Oh, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch his treasure. I pray that you know this love that turns wretches into treasure. The grace that turns dirt into diamonds. But you know who does not? is the darkness. And the darkness hates the light. The old friends of these elect exiles in the dispersion were not having it. They saw this new life they were living and said, uh-uh, I know who you are. I know who you are. You used to be here with us all the time. Don't look at us that way. This was your favorite place. You used to come here and engage in all this idol worship, and now you want to say that you're too holy for us? Uh Uh-uh. I know who you are. What would they do? They would malign them. What does that mean? It means to say evil, wicked, even untrue things about them. I wonder if you know people like that in your past. Who see that you're not swimming in the same river of iniquity like you used to. And they hate you for it. Make no mistake, the darkness hates the light. People lost in sin hate it when you walk in the light. They hate it because that's what John 1 tells us. Why do they malign you? Because they're surprised, they're astonished, that you, sin- that you, sinful you, you no longer want to join in in the same flood of debauchery, Peter calls it, with them. What is a flood of debauchery? What does that mean? To quote from the UBS handbook, it is describing such an immersion in sinful behavior that the individual no longer cares about anything as long as he can enjoy the pleasures of life. That's sin. Unabashed, headlong, diving into the waters of depravity. Come on in. The water's nice. And you used to love to swim here anyway. And they hate you when you don't, don't join in with them. They begin to say all sorts of terrible things about you. In the early church, we're going to take the Lord's Supper today. The early church, was they were called cannibals. Why? Because Christ said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. So they were maligned and people were falsely accusing them of cannibalism. Isn't that, in, isn't that ridiculous and absurd? Why? Because the darkness hates the light. Recalled all sorts of things. I've said a few times, and I'll continue to say that persecution is not only being beheaded or imprisoned for the faith. Here we see clearly, as the believers are being persecuted for their faith in God and obedience to Him, that it's manifested in their being maligned, criticized, slandered, reviled. It's not just beheading, it's not just being put in prison. It's people saying crazy things about you and hating you. This is the kind of persecution that we're talking about. Peter's point here is that these believers are tried in the court of public opinion and they're found to be guilty of not living according to the social and cultural norms of the day. Therefore, their punishment is to be maligned and ostracized and cut off from the good graces of the culture. But Peter says... You want to know who else is ready to pass down judgment? God is. God is ready to pass down judgment. Look at it with me. Verse 5. But they will give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God is ready to judge the living and the dead you ever thought about the Lord your God this way? He's ready to judge the wickedness that we see in our land today. He is ready. This is an adverb that's giving us a sense of the imminence of God's judgment. He's ready to go. Keys in hand. It is at hand. You see, the unbelievers think that they're on the right path because they enjoy their rampant sinfulness without God raining down fire upon them as if that were the only way that God pours His wrath out on people. Look at Romans 1, and you'll see that there's more ways than one. But there will come a day, as He shows us here in verse 5, when the unbelief, unbeliever will be tried in a different court. Then it will be the high courts of heaven, and they will be found guilty of living according to their own passions, instead of the will of God. Their punishment will be seen in being declared guilty, not by society, but by God Himself. And cut off from His good graces while being cast into the lake of fire where their suffering will be unquenchable. You see, believer, your suffering will only be for a lifetime at worst and then an eternity of bliss and joy. For the unbeliever, they might live to be a hundred years old and live it up and have money, wealth, power, fame. But the moment the clock stops ticking, it is an eternity full of conscious, eternal judgment. Torment, where the smoke of them will rise forever and ever. So you too. If you are hearing this today and you do not know the Lord, this is your future. This is exactly what you can expect. So you must flee the wrath to come by running to Christ. Peter puts this forth both as a reminder of future judgment and also to give hope to the believers. In speaking of the future judgment, the unbelievers who will malign them will experience Judgment. We are reminded of what we spoke of last week from 2 Peter. That God knows how to rescue His own, even if they are small in number, while keeping the unrighteous under punishment until judgment. In other words, once again, we are confronted with the reality that God's protection and their future vindication are absolutes. They're not potential outcomes, but they are certain, fixed, guaranteed Outcomes. If you are a believer and you faint, not. Lastly, the gospel proclaimed. Look at verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. This is another difficult verse to translate. But as has been our custom, we're going to focus on the main idea. Peter is saying that the gospel has been proclaimed. It was proclaimed to everyone so that though they die in the flesh, they will be made alive in the Spirit. Isn't this reminiscent of last week's section? Look at verse 18 from chapter 3. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. It sure sounds like this, that though they are judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. When Christ was crucified, the religious elite thought it was the condemnation of God upon him, that he was dying because God was judging him as a blasphemer. The spirits thought that they had won, as the King of glory breathed His last. But what they did not anticipate was the Father raising Him back to life in power by the Spirit of holiness. This resurrection was vindication. He was proven to be who He said to be, that He was not a liar or a lunatic, but He is Lord in the same way. You and I, we will die in this lifetime. And because of that, unbelievers are prone to believe that we're no better off than them. You die too. You get sick too. You have hard time too. Why should I follow this God? Because at the end of this life, it's only the beginning of eternal life. The unbelievers have this life to enjoy. You and I, we have all of eternity. That's why. Why should we hold on to hope? Because Christ has been resurrected. He's been vindicated. Showing that you and I will be too. And so we proclaim the gospel. So that when we go to the grave, it's not the end of our lives, but only the beginning. And on that day when we see our Savior, every tear spilled, every drop of blood spilled, every anguished prayer, every moment of pain, sorrow, and suffering on the road of obedience to God will be worth it. So, believer, do not lose heart. Prepare yourself for war. Make no mistake by arming yourself with the mindset that Christ had, by settling in your mind and in your heart That no matter what it costs you, money, comfort, friends, family, or even your life, that come what may, you will obey the will of the Lord. Stand flat-footed in the face of opposition, saying, Here I stand. I can do no other. God help. me."